The government can spy on your push notifications. Meta has actually delivered on end-to-end -end encrypted messaging, marking one of the few wins in a long time for Meta. A startling new research on firmware vulnerabilities and Android password managers and more. Welcome to SR159, where we are dedicated to keeping you private and secure with the latest news in the past week. Thank you for being here and keeping yourself safe. I am Henry from TechLore. I am Nathan from The New Oil. Still no sponsors or anything yet. Maybe one day we'll do that. But right now it's still all just community supported. So if you want to join that and be a part of uh, this podcast and how we make this free and how we continue to improve uh, the quality when we can and keep this consistent, join our Patreon at patreon.com slash techlore. You'll gain access to our Q&A, which we publish typically around midweek, though I think Nate just published it this morning. We're recording this one on Sunday, so our schedules do fall off here and there. Uh, we're still human, but we try our best. And uh, if you don't like Patreon, we're on LibraPay and we also support Monero Tips as well. And if you can't contribute at all, share your favorite thing about the podcast and give us a new boost. That's cool too. Um, any fixes or notes from last week? You can, you can delete this if you want, but for those who are curious what happened last week, YouTube lied to me and I thought I was publishing like the regular one is the regular and the VIP is the VIP and Google switched them on me. So some of you guys got to see the VIP and some of you guys got to see the regular. So uh, I guess you're welcome. Enjoy the mistake. And for those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, just don't worry about it. Just like Henry said, we're human. Yeah. But for those if, of you if, who uh, who got a lucky bonus, enjoy it. Hopefully it won't happen too often. Yeah. <laughs> and if you want that bonus every week, then join our Patreon and get it like for realsies. All right. So our highlight story this week is uh, a big one. I know it's kind of all over the news right now. So you guys might be tired of hearing about it. But, uh, you know, it, it, like literally five people sent this to me in one day, and it is good to get different opinions on things. So we're going to talk about the warrant showing that the U.S. government is monitoring push notifications. This particular article comes from 404 Media, but there are plenty to pick from. It says the U.S. government is demanding that tech companies provide information related to push notifications in order to identify a target specific device. Push notifications, uh, for those who don't know, push notifications are not sent directly from an app provider to a user's smartphone. Instead, they pass through a kind of digital post office run by the phone's operating system, uh, typically meaning Apple or Google. When a user gets a push notification on their phone, Apple or Google receive a lot of information, including metadata that shows which app received the notification and which phone an associated Google or Apple account it was to be sent to. In some cases, unencrypted content like the actual text displayed in the notification may be included too. So uh, just kind of paraphrasing the article, basically when you first download an app and you log in, the app obtains what's called a push token, which quote, allows the provider associated with the application to locate the device on which application is installed. It only happens one time, it happens at the very beginning, but it seems to be stored uh, in perpetuity or at very least until you like delete the app or log out or something. So Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon has been calling for more transparency from tech companies to reveal aggregate numbers on the demands they receive for this type of data. Apple claims that in the past they have been prohibited from sharing said information by the federal government. Uh, but for some reason, now that it's public knowledge, they can and will start doing so. I, I think technically that's a thing, but it, I'm not gonna lie. It definitely sounds like a cop out. Uh, an unnamed source from Reuters said that U.S. allies have also been involved in these requests. Google, on the other hand, claims that they've always been sharing this kind of information. In fact, the exact quote was, we were the first major company to publish a public transparency report sharing the number and types of government requests for user data we receive, including the requests referred to by Senator Wyden. We share the senator's commitment to keeping users informed about these requests. So that's really kind of all we know at this time. It seems, from what I can tell, 
that this is not so much a dragnet type of surveillance thing, at least as much as we can prove. Honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if it is happening in mass. But for now, it seems to, to indicate that this is more of a targeted thing, that uh, the government will show up with a warrant and say, we need more information about this specific account or this specific user or specific device, etc. There's not a lot of great options. Um, there are certain services like Session and Threema and Tutanota, or Tuta, uh, who offer their own push services and... The push token will still exist from what I can tell in these situations. It just won't be living on Apple or Google servers. Uh, it'll be living on their servers, so they're still not immune to a warrant. There is something called Unified Push that I've never tried, but I know a few people have brought it up. Um, I know it can be achieved through Nextcloud. It's Again, it's kind of like the same thing, though. It's basically like hosting your own service, server for this uh, push token. In my opinion, the best defense is just to try and keep your phone as clear of apps as possible. Uh, if you don't absolutely need the app, don't put it on your phone. Use alternate options when you can. Again, like Session and Threema who say like you can use the regular push or you can use ours because at least that is a little bit of a barrier. And uh, as always, just assume that everything digital is being watched. I'll let you go ahead and plug TechLore Talks and uh, we'll see what other thoughts Henry has on this story. Yeah, I'll keep my thoughts limited because Jonah and I already talked about this for probably about 20 minutes on TechLore Talks. We've got into the nitty gritty technical details uh, and, you know, custom ROM users, uh, what this looks like if you're using a compatibility layer like MicroG, like you were talking about, or any other compatibility layer. If you don't use Google Play services at all, what happens? And it, there's also some nuance to involving the push notifications. I think using Signal, for example, is very different than using a lot of other messengers because Signal has prepared for this for a long time. In fact, most of these privacy organizations have already been aware of this limitation for years. Uh, so this isn't anything new, even though it sounds new. The only new thing is that we now know for a fact that the government uh, does gag orders on this stuff, and it's more formally known now. Um, but it's been known in the privacy community for a long time that this is a thing, at least in the technical side of the privacy community. And it's something that a lot of the privacy orgs have actually put in a lot of precautions for. So as someone who uses Signal, I'm not changing my notifications for it. Um, it's not something that's part of my threat model, at least. And uh, like you said, Tutanota and even Proton does something different as well. Session, a lot of these people do something different. And then if you do want to use Signal with Unified Push, which is what you were talking about, Molly on Android does support that option as well. Um, but there's a lot more. I think there's like 20 plus minutes of discussion that Jonah and I have about this. Um, I forgot what it was cut down to, but I'd check that out in the description if you want to learn more about the story, because it's, it's a lot to unpack. All right, we're going to go into data breaches, and Nate here seems to have an idea that I very much agree with, and I would have <laughs> probably done this a lot sooner, because back when I was doing surveillance support, I restricted... Well, I didn't do any data breaches, and then you introduced data breaches, and I was like... That was one of my conditions for joining. Like five. <laughs> and so uh, Nate here said you, you want to stop sharing IP leaks, aka things that don't affect individuals directly. And uh, we might have more criteria soon, like the size of the leak or something like that to save time because we just can't spend. Yeah, know, it's getting half pretty of crazy. The recording on just data breaches. If you all have any suggestions on criteria for us to watch out for and things that you care about, let us know. Um, I personally also don't mind. I don't know how Nate feels about this. Just maybe for the smaller ones, we just list them off. Just be like, hey, Nikon had a data breach. Sony had a data breach. Uh, I was thinking about doing that with account. research because I'm no I'm starting to notice that a lot of the the articles in my newsfeed are like, oh, there's this new vulnerability. It's not like a huge deal, but it's like maybe just a list of like, hey, they found these, 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 and these. There's links in the articles or in the show notes, right? Because we post show notes every week, so if someone maybe someone just needs to hear about it, and if it impacts them, then they look into it, which I think is how it works. Be like, hey, Nikon had a data breach. You're like, oh wait, I bought a Nikon camera this year. Let me look into that. So. 
I don't know. Anyway, uh, Tapalti, Tapalti investigates claims of data stolen in ransomware attack. So they're investigating claims that the Alpha V Alpha ransomware gang breached its network and stole 256 gigabytes of data belonging to the company as well as its employees and clients, including data for Roblox and Twitch. Uh, F to all the children who listen to this. Uh, Tapalti offers technology solutions for accounting, payment processing, e-commerce, and affiliate and influencer programs, and the company has numerous well-known customers, including Twitch, Roblox, ZipRecruiter, Roku, GoDaddy, Canva, and X, aka Twitter. And that's actually all we know. That's pretty much all that's in the article. HTC Global Services also uh, confirms a cyber attack after data was leaked online. HTC Global Services is a managed service provider offering technology and business services to healthcare, automotive, manufacturing, and financial industries. Uh, They were also hit by Alpha, also known as Black Cat. They listed HTC on their data leak site along with screenshots of the allegedly stolen data, which seems to include passports, contact lists, emails, and confidential documents allegedly stolen during the attack. While little information about the attack on HTC is available, Cybersecurity professional Kevin Beaumont believes the company was breached using the Citrix Bleed vulnerability, which I'm pretty sure we briefly talked about a couple weeks ago. We really have no information about this next one outside of they're investigating it, but Nissan uh, was hit by a cyber attack uh, in their systems in Australia and New Zealand, and it may have access personal information. We don't know anything else, though, so... We'll keep an eye on that. Stay subscribed. This is kind of a little bit of research, but it says millions of patient scans and health records spilling online thanks to decades-old protocol bug. So this is a standard known as Digital Imaging and Communications in Medicine, or DICOM, and it is internationally recognized format for medical imaging, kind of like a JPEG or PNG. It is used as the file format for CT scans and X-ray images to ensure interoperability between different imaging systems and software. Images are typically typically stored in a picture storage and sharing system or PAC server, allowing medical practitioners to store images in a single file and share records with other medical practices. So research into DICOM systems has discovered more than 3,800 servers across more than 110 countries exposing the personal information of some 16 million patients. Researchers say they found patient names, genders, addresses, and phone numbers, and in some cases, social security numbers. The research, which scanned the internet for DICOM servers for more than six months, found that these servers are also exposing more than 43 million health records, which can include the results of an examination when the examination took place and the referring physician's details. Most of the exposed servers, more than 8 million records, are based in the U.S., followed by 9.6 million records in India and 7.3 million in South Africa. Researchers said that many of the U.S.-based servers are hosting data from medical practices located outside the U.S., which is lovely. Uh, More than 70% are hosted by giants like AWS and Microsoft Azure. The rest are servers and medical offices connected to the internet. Fewer than 1% of DICOM servers on the internet are using effective security measures. So... Uh, very troubling, very upsetting. And uh, if this has been going on this long and it's this big, I would be truly shocked if uh, nobody has accessed this before. And in fact, now that this article is probably out, there, there's probably people scanning for this stuff now. 3,000, ser- almost 4,000 servers in 110 countries. There's no way these are all closed up and patched. And uh, I, I know it wasn't a lot, but they mentioned that a small number of the servers were from like medical practices. That's just kind of a reminder, or there it is, uh, the rest are located in medical offices connected to the internet. It's just a reminder that when you self-host anything, we are, I think we are fans of self-hosting and we do encourage it, but you do have to know what you're doing and you have to realize there's a risk there. So always keep that in mind. Navy contractor Austell USA has confirmed a cyber attack after a data leak. 
They're also based in Australia and specialize in high-performance aluminum vessels, and its American subsidiary, Austal USA, is under contract for multiple programs that include the U.S. Navy and Coast Guard. Data includes compliance documents, recruiting information, finance details, certifications, and engineering data. Next up, Norton Healthcare discloses data breach after May ransomware attack. I don't think they're related to Norton Antivirus. Norton Healthcare serves adult and pediatric patients at more than 140 clinics and hospitals across the greater Lowville area, uh, southern Indiana, and the Commonwealth of Kentucky. They have over 20,000 employees, and they are Lowville's second largest employer. The attackers gained access to a wide range of sensitive information, including name, contact information, social security number, date of birth, health information, insurance information, and medical identification numbers. Norton says that for some individuals, likely employees, the exposed data may also have included financial account numbers, driver's licenses, or other government ID numbers, and digital signatures. Potentially affected individuals will receive a whopping two years of free credit protection services and additional information in breach notification letters. Uh, this next one... Uh respectfully pisses me off um 23andme which is the ancestry dna reporting agency uh had their data stolen on 6.9 million users so this is an update actually because they kind of really downplayed this and nate also said uh, kind of called this a little bit so on friday genetic testing company 23andme announced that hackers accessed the personal data of 0.1 percent of customers or about 14,000 people the company also said that by accessing those accounts, hackers were also able to access, quote, a significant number of files containing profile information about other users' ancestry. As it turns out, there were a lot of other users who were victims of this data breach. A little more than 14,000, actually. 6.9 million! <laughs> Just a little Just more. Just a little Just more. slightly more. A few, maybe a few cousins here and there. Anyway, yeah, 23 right. <laughs> me confirmed that hackers accessed the personal information of about 5.5 million people who opted into 23andMe's data relatives feature, which allows customers to automatically share some of their data with others. The stolen data includes the person's name, birth year, relationship labels, the percentage of DNA shared with relatives, ancestry reports, and self-reported location. It also confirmed that another group of about 1.4 million, which is how we get to 6.9, uh, also who opted in also had their family tree profile information accessed, which includes display names, relationship labels, birth year, self-reported location, and whether the user decided to share their information. Considering the new numbers, in reality, the data breach is known to affect roughly half of 23andMe's total reported 14 million customers. Ah, <sighs> All right, that's all we got on that one. We're going to roll into companies. And uh, we have, surprisingly, good news about Facebook for five minutes. Don't worry, they'll be back in the headlines next week for something crappy, I'm sure. Uh, Meta has finally started rolling out default end-to-end -end encryption for Messenger. And honestly, I'd never thought we were going to see this. But here we are. So getting into the actual story, after years of promises and limited tests, Meta has started rolling out default end-to-end -end encryption protection. Eh, asterisk. Default end-to-end -end encryption protection for Messenger. In an announcement, Mark Zuckerberg said that personal chats and calls will get default end-to-end -end encryption. However, encryption for group chats still remains an opt-in feature. Uh, on its engineering blog, Meta said that rolling out end-to-end -end encryption for which it uses the Signal protocol took such a long time for the rollout because the company had to rebuild certain features such as the sticker library and chat storage from the ground up. Uh, in August, the company also said that Instagram DMs would get end-to-end -end encryption protection after the Messenger rollout, so theoretically, that should be coming very soon. Apart from the security update, there's also new features for Messenger, including the ability to edit a message up to 15 minutes after sending, speed control for voice messages to play those clips at 1.5 or 2x speed, new photo and video layouts, and a new 
new interface for disappearing messages. The company said that it is also working on the ability to send HD photos and videos on Messenger. And I just had to know, those are all features Signal has and has had for a while. Um, but yeah, this is a... It's good that this is rolling out. Um, I swear I read somewhere that this was actually not default, but maybe they were talking about the group chats, how it's opt-in and whatever. So there are there are limitations here, and I'm certain that unlike Signal, I don't think Meta's just going to be throwing away the, um, the metadata. I'm sure they're still going to hold on to that. So there's definitely some limitations and concerns here still, but overall, this is way overdue. And uh, I still hate Meta. I still think they are constantly competing with Amazon for the title of company on the planet but credit where it's due good job meta this was overdue thank you for finally rolling it out also i think this in my book means i can i actually feel more comfortable with my friends using facebook messenger instead of telegram but i think just (laughs) from just from a technical perspective uh the fact that you know most people aren't going to know about secret chats and enable that bull Mm -hmm. and And it's only available on mobile and yeah and so on facebook you're just going by default get end-to-end encryption facebook can't read your messages Mm-hmm. Um, which is, I think, a better situation to be in on te- than Telegram, which is by default everything is exposed. And also, right. uh, Telegram, as far as I know, doesn't have a way to do end-to-end encryption in group chats, and Facebook now does. Even if it's not default, you actually mm. can't do that on Facebook now. So that's true. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. Step the game up, Telegram. All right, Apple TV just got its first big native VPN app. So one of the big uses of VPNs is to watch region-locked content, but until recently, you weren't able to use them on Apple TVs. Asterisk there, you could, I assume, if you set up a VPN on your network level. But that's now changing with the help of one of the bigger names in VPNs, which is ExpressVPN, which has released its app on tvOS. To be honest, I'm just going to leave it there. There's some other VPN companies like Nord and freaking PureVPN who are like, yeah, we're going to do this too. Um, And so we'll see if other VPNs roll this out too. Uh, I mean, there's one. I was going to say TailScale's on there. Tailscale wants to roll this out, uh, which probably means you should be able to do this with Mulvad, actually, um, if they support that feature, because Tailscale now partners with Mulvad. Um, but we might also see Proton, IVPN, Mulvad, and more relevant pr- uh, privacy VPNs jump on this as well. But on the topic of Apple, we have a new company. New uh, new challenger has entered the chat. Beeper has reverse-engineered iMessage to bring Bluebubble text to Android users, because we didn't learn anything from Nothing Chat and Sunbird. They do actually address that. Um, so a startup called Beeper is now launching a new app called Beeper Mini, which will allow Android users to send and receive end-to-end encrypted iMessage chats for just $2 a month. Uh, they say that this is possible because the team has managed to reverse engineer the iMessage protocol. So I think the CEO said this, we're not actually a middleman anymore. The research we've done is actually reverse engineering the iMessage protocol down to the lowest layer. So Beeper Mini doesn't use a Mac server as a relay like other apps. They have a Mac Mini in a data center somewhere. And when you send a message, you're actually sending a message to the Mac Mini, which then forwards it to iMessage. Beeper Mini is a native implementation of the iMessage protocol. And here's where they address Beeper does not have access to the contents of the user's messages. The company claims, and unlike the recently paused efforts by Sun, Bird, which have been trying to solve the same problem. Messages are not sent in clear text. Instead, the message you send from an Android phone using Beeper Mini is end-to-end encrypted to the recipient. It's encrypted on the device before it leaves the app. Encryption keys are exclusively stored on your phone within the Android file system, similar to other apps like Signal and WhatsApp. The app doesn't connect to any servers at Beeper itself, only to Apple servers the way a quote-unquote real iMessage text would. Users will not need an Apple ID. And then I'll, I'll, I'll actually give these guys some credit. This next paragraph, they say, to be fully trusted, Beeper Mini would need to be audited by a third party, something it has not yet done. In addition, they use 
certificate pinning, which makes network traffic analysis more difficult to perform in order to verify its claims. The company says its external audit is still in progress, but it has performed an internal audit. The company is publishing those results on its blog, along with a detailed, more technical description of how Beeper Mini works. In tests, it worked as described. When, it, when the phone's battery died, however, the Android phone, the text reverted to green bubbles and did not make it to the Beeper app. They were sent to Google Messages instead. Uh, Bieber is hoping to gain his trust, gain trust by building in public with 50 plus projects that it's published to the GitHub with open source code that goes into the app. Plus the founders themselves are known individuals with a history of building promising tech, including the Pebble smartwatch, but follow up in less than a week, Apple shut it down. I'm going to be honest. I didn't read that full article. I don't know if they like identified Bieber devices and blocked them or if they sent a cease and desist, but either way it's shut down right now. So, um, uh, I think there's another update actually. Oh my gosh. Breaking news. That, uh, what do we got back up? Okay. So depending on the exact minute you watch this, it may or may not be up. Google calls drive data loss fixed. <laughs> so last week, our highlight story was that people were losing their files on Google drive and it was kind of this weird situation. And the problem here is that the company still calls it a syncing issue with the de drive desktop clients. And it's, they said that it's fixed. They didn't really explain what happened or how it's fixed, um, but they do explain the issue and these do, the documentation. But it's not just a simple case of fixing the syncing issue by just shipping a new version. It seems like people actually have to go in and do certain things and try to recover the files in a very complicated manner. The problem is that Google has locked the issue thread on the Drive community forums at 170 replies before it was clear that the problem was solved. Uh, it's also marking any additional threads as duplicates and locking them as well. Taking away the space to diagnose the issue and communicate fixes adds to the sense that Google is more interested in PR damage than actually helping users. It also doesn't allow people to reply to the solution posts, so it's hard to evaluate the fixes of efficacy since Google shut down the easiest avenues for users' feedback and support. Of the few replies before Google locked the thread, most suggested that Google's fix did not work, which is honestly such a bad decision on Google's end. Because beforehand, I, like this is a personal thing for me, People who go to me and say, hey, I have non-sensitive data. It's just like public corporate documents that, you know, technically anyone can request. But I just want good backups in place. I just want someplace that like I don't have to man. I don't have to think about losing it myself. I'm like, just upload it to Google. If you already have a Google account and you're already in the workspace suite, just use Google. Because normally what we can count on something like Google for is the kind of reliability that's going to come along with such a massive company that has 24-7 infrastructure, Right. You don't ever think about if Google's down when you're doing a search. Google's just always up. And so this is a massive, 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 massive hit on their reputation. Um, not just the fact it happened, but the fact they're not actually dealing with the issue in a, in a mature way, I think. Really sad. All right, with that, we'll get into research. And uh, we have a couple interesting ones this week. We're going to start with just about every Windows and Linux device vulnerable to new logo fail firmware attack. So the attack is notable for the relative ease in carrying it out, the breadth of both consumer and enterprise grade models that are susceptible and the high level of control it gains over them. In many cases, logo fail can be remotely executed in post exploit situations using techniques that can't be spotted by traditional endpoint security products. And because exploits run during the earliest stages of the boot process, they're able to bypass a host of defenses 
services, including the industry-wide Secure Boot, Intel Secure Boot, and similar protections from other companies that are devised to prevent so-called bootkit infections. LogoFail is a constellation of two dozen newly discovered vulnerabilities that have lurked for years, if not decades, in the United Extensible Firmware Interfaces, uh, or e UEFI, responsible for booting modern devices that run Windows or Linux. The vulnerabilities are the product of almost a year's worth of work by Binarly, a firm that helps customers identify and secure vulnerable software. The affected parties are releasing advisories that disclose which of their products are vulnerable and where to obtain security patches. This is one of those articles that goes on to give a very exhaustive breakdown of how this attack works, like really goes into detail. So if you're interested and you're tech savvy, Go check the article. It spares no detail as far as I can tell. The best way to prevent LogoFail attacks is to install the UEFI security updates that are being released as part of Wednesday's coordinated disclosure process. Those patches will be distributed by the manufacturer of the device or the motherboard running inside the device. It's also a good idea when possible to con configure UEFIs to use multiple layers of defense. Besides Secure Boot, this includes both Intel Boot Guard and, when available, Intel BIOS Guard. There are similar, similar additional defenses available for devices running AMD or ARM CPUs. Your mobile password manager might be exposed your credentials uh, with a vulnerability dubbed auto spill which can expose your saved credentials from these password managers using the autofill mechanism so the researchers found that when an android app loads a login page in webview for those who don't know webview is kind of like how there's blink slash chromium which is the browser engine that chrome runs on there's also webkit there's webview which is what google uses on android uh, password managers can get disoriented about where they should target and by the way uh, so if you wonder what this is, if your phone comes with a default browser, it likely uses WebView. Something like DuckDuckGo uses WebView on Android. So if you use the DuckDuckGo browser, you're actually using WebView. Um, but password managers can get disoriented about where they should target the user's login information and instead expose their credentials to the underlying app's native fields. They note that the ramifications of this vulnerability, particularly in a scenario where the base app is malicious, are significant. Even without phishing, any malicious app that asks you to log in via another site, like Google or Facebook, can automatically access sensitive information. And they tested this vulnerability using some of the most popular password managers like OnePass, LastPass, Keeper, and NPass on uh, new and up-to-date Android devices, and they found that most apps were vulnerable to credential leakage, even with JavaScript injection disabled. With JavaScript injection enabled, all the password managers were susceptible to the vulnerability. 1Password has said that the company has identified and is working on a fix. 1Password's autofill function has been designed to require the user to take explicit action. This update will provide additional protection by preventing native fields from being filled with credentials that are only intended for Android's web view and Google and NPass did not respond to the questions. Uh, 1Password's on top of their stuff, generally speaking, so it's nice to see them uh, be very proactive about this issue. Be cool to see uh, Bitwarden uh, tackle this as well. And our last research story is a quick one from Apple. Apple Report finds, well, sponsored by Apple. Apple Report finds steep increase in data breaches and ransomware. So just some interesting statistics here that I thought y'all might like to know. Some 2.6 billion personal records have been exposed in data breaches over the past two years, and that number continues to grow according to a new report commissioned by Apple. So according to the report, just uh, some interesting significant findings, data breaches in the US through the first nine months of this year are already 20% higher than for all of 2022. Nearly 70% more ransomware attacks were reported through September 2023 than in the first three quarters of 2023. Uh, Americans and those in the UK topped the list of those most targeted in ransomware attacks in 2023, followed by Canada and Australia. Those four countries accounted for nearly 70% of recorded rans reported ransomware attacks, and one in four people in the US had their health data exposed in a data breach during the first nine months of 2023. Thank goodness we had no political stories this week. Um, and so we're just going to jump right into the open source news, the good stuff, FOSS. 
And we're gonna start with Proton Drive, which has a new photo backup feature for Android, which protects snapshots of your life. Um, this is for their Proton Drive Android app, and it will be available to everyone in a matter of days. By the time you're listening to this, it's probably out by now. And uh, your photos and important metadata are end-to-end encrypted by default, and it's easy to start. And honestly, for me, it's, uh, and Nate, Nate's going to talk about his experience. The real selling point here, I think, is just uh, automatic backups. But I'm going to be real. I don't know. It doesn't seem like the integration with the photos is very good. It's not like it's going to offer super sophisticated uh, photo features. So we'll see. I, I, I'm not going to be using this, but Nate, uh, after uh, Nate uh, recovers from whatever happened, I'm sure he'll talk about his... his God f***ing damn cat. He messed up the transfer. Thank you. That's only been going for like an hour. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't really have a strong opinion. I'm with you. I use Nextcloud and I'm happy with Nextcloud. I know that's not everybody has that option. That's kind of a very privileged option for me. Um, I tried it. It works well enough. It looks fine. I think it's a little weird that it's in the drive app, uh, like in, in weird in the sense of like, I know Proton is trying to be a competitor to like Google and Apple and all these stuff, uh, all these companies. So I feel like it's like, even I was a little confused. Cause like when I first read this, it was also first thing in the morning and the coffee was still kicking in, but I was like, Oh, okay. You know, proton photo app. And it's like, I went looking for it and I couldn't find it. And then when I read it closer, I'm like, Oh no, it's drive and it's in the drive app. Um, but I mean, once you find it and like, you know, it, it looks like a photo gallery and it's got all your photos there. I think my only real complaint is that it only backed up like the actual camera photos and it didn't back up everything. And I have a lot of like screenshots and memes and, you know, things that I, I save that aren't photos. And so it's like, okay, well, I don't know. Ho I, I'm hoping they'll fix that. But I don't know. I mean, I, I guess it's all right. I don't have any complaints with it. Well, other than that one. I'm, I'm a little conflicted on this, man. I, I'm going to be real. You know, I've, I've talked to Jonah in the past about this, how Google has a, a really big problem, which is Google discontinues so many of their projects that when they mm -hmm. release new ones, people don't even want to use them because they right. just assume it's going to be discontinued anyway. And it's a vicious cycle because <laughs> Google discontinues it because no one uses it, but no one wants to use it because you can't trust Google. And I'm kind right. of in that boat with Proton right now. I'm not going to move my whole photo gallery to a Proton product like this. It's like they might just stop working on it for five years and they're still going to have the same issues. Like Proton Calendar on iOS, you still can't change the calendar. If you have a business and work calendar or business calendar and a personal calendar on iOS, you still can't change it on iOS. They said they would do that years ago. Yeah. And it's the little things like that that's like I I don't have any faith in Proton to handle a feature like this. And I love the Proton suite, but like the only incentive I could find to use this instead of a better solution, objectively better solution is if you're already paying for Proton and you just want to save You already some use cash. the drive and yeah. yeah, but then you're going to be like compromising a lot for this, I think. So I hope it gets better. Um, I think it'd be awesome to have that option, but yeah, I'm no, not as soon as, this. as soon as I said there was no like actual like photo app, the, like as soon as I said it, I was just like, to be fair, that's probably a good thing because then that would just be one more app for them to have to work on. But that's the problem. That's that's what I'm talking. There's just no faith because I right. wish that they did roll out its own photo app that had its own sophisticated features where you could. Uh, tag things do ai recognition and things like that um but like you said then you know they'd roll it out would never and do it. six months later it would the, get like a bug fix release and then two years later it would finally get some new features 
Right. Like, yeah, they're very slow on development. All right, our next one, um, I just thought it was interesting and wanted to share with you guys. It says, Mammoth, an X and Threads competitor, embraces news, curation, and more in the latest release. So Mammoth is an app from a Mozilla-backed startup. They are focused on building a more consumer-friendly entry point to the world of decentralized social media. Uh, so basically, it's a Mastodon client. Fancy way of saying that. Um, they have launched their next big upgrade, Mammoth 2, or they don't say 2.0, but you know, it's Mammoth 2.0. The third-party Mastodon client has already focused on various pain points for joining the open source competitor, uh, including better onboarding and its own for you feed. And with version two, the app is introducing other features that will make it easier to use, like personalized follow suggestions, curated smart lists that will help you tra track topics of interest, and integration with trusted sources for news to give the app more of a Twitter-like feel. So I'm sure that many of you are with me in saying, I don't care about any of this. To me, this actually seems antithetical to Mastodon. Like that's one of the selling points of Mastodon, in my opinion, is like there is no algorithm, there is no suggestions. That was one of the things that drove me crazy about Twitter back when I used to be there is it would be like 10 of your friends liked this tweet. And I'm like, that's cool. 10 of my friends are on crack and I don't give a crap what their opinion is. I, I'm sharing this because for some of you who maybe have a friend who like is, is that one friend that's like, God, Twitter is such a crap hole, but I, I feel like I can't leave it try recommending this to them because maybe that's what they need is they need something that will help them find new accounts and it's just a client. So if six months down the road, they're like, yeah, I don't want to use this client anymore. I can drop it and get something else that doesn't algorithmically do things. I don't know. It's, it's, it's just something interesting that I wanted to share because I could see a use for this. I don't personally want it, but I'm sure others do. This one is an article titled Firefox on the Brink question mark. And this is a guideline for developers of US government websites maybe about to accelerate the long uh, and sad decline of Mozilla's Firefox browser. Uh, this actually boils down, you know, this, there's a lot of information here. So Nate, feel free to add on if I miss anything, but I'm trying to simplify this. Essentially, there is a government, it's an arbitrary number, which is 2%. And the government only officially supports websites and has these guidelines set in place for other websites that is based on this 2% value. So browsers have to have 2%, um, Market share. Usage. Yeah, yeah, share. Usage. In order for them to officially support it and have their websites officially work via on those browsers. And Firefox is at 2.2% right now. So essentially, the idea here is if Firefox falls below 2%, what's going to happen? Are websites going to officially... There already is a lot of missing stuff right now in Firefox, and Firefox is already deprioritized when it comes to development. But to have an official U.S. government agency and these official guidelines and the U.S. government officially getting rid of Firefox support could be really harmful to the project. Did I miss anything? Is there anything else? To... No, I think that about sums it up. It's cool. a, it's worth a read. It's not a very long article, and he does have some graphs, so it's not just like a wall of text. But no, that's a, that's pretty much the the gist of it. All right, with that, we'll roll into Misfits. First one's pretty quick. It's more interesting than anything. It says fake WordPress security advisory pushes backdoor plugin. So basically, uh, WordPress users, uh, like website owners, got emails that pretended to be from WordPress and said, hey, there's a new critical remote code execution flaw, and you need to go download this plugin that will fix it, which I think for the more tech savvy amongst us is kind of like, wait, what? But for, you know, People who may not be as tech savvy, they're probably like, oh, okay. Um, and then, of course, it turned out to be a backdoor. Interestingly, they said that the entry for the plugin uh, is probably also misleading. Like, it says it has over 500,000 downloads, and they're like, that's probably not true. Um, there's, like, reviews about how it fixed their site and, you know, fixed all these bugs. And I think there's even, like, a couple of one- and two-star reviews thrown in to make it look more realistic. 
Um, yeah, at the time it remains unknown who's behind it and exactly what they're doing. It could just be simple, like trying to inject ads and make some money, or it could be stealing sensitive information, uh, you know, website content, login, stuff like that. But just a reminder out there, be very, very careful and vet all the information you get like emails and stuff like that. This next one is our last story for the week, and it's that Verizon gave phone data to an armed stalker who posed as cop over email. So the FBI was the one who investigated this, and someone essentially tricked Verizon uh, via phone and acted like they were a cop and to try to get information uh, from a suspect that met on the dating section of the porn site X-Hamster. I didn't know X-Hamster had dating. Maybe that's my next place where I'm going to start my dating uh, ventures. Um, according, hey, no, don't bite me, kitty. Um, this is according to a newly sealed, dark, or, I don't say that. okay, so despite the relatively unconvincing cover story uh, by the suspect, including the use of a clearly non-government proton mail email address, Verizon handed over the victim's data to the alleged stalker, including their address and phone logs. The stalker then went on to threaten the victim and ended up driving to where he believed the victim lived while armed with a knife. Woof. That is everyone's worst uh, nightmare. So the news is a massive failure by Verizon, who did not verify that the data request was fraudulent and the company potentially put someone's safety at risk. The news also highlights the now common use of fraudulent emergency data requests, which are also known as EDRs, or search warrants in the digital underworld where criminals pretend to be law enforcement, fabricate an urgent scenario such as a kidnapping, and then convince telecoms or tech companies to hand over data that should only be accessible through legitimate law enforcement requests. As 404 Media previously reported, some hackers are now using compromised government email accounts for this purpose. So pretty scary stuff. Um, definitely uh, an area where I personally believe uh, security through obscurity is actually a big win uh, because if people don't know some basic information about you, it's really hard to pull off these kind of attacks. So uh, even things like a first and last name, depending on who the stranger is, can be pretty, it can put you in a bad place. Um, and also who your cell carrier is. And that kind of stuff is really important. If someone doesn't know who your cell carrier is, they're going to have to do this for four different people. And it might be a lot harder for them to figure out who you actually are. I just want to add on to that for anyone who uh, is new or confused. The reason most people are opposed to security through obscurity is because a lot of people use it as a first line of defense or an only line of defense. It should never be your only line of defense, but I totally agree. As an additional layer of defense, it's the way to go. All right, well, again, uh, to recap the week, the government can spy on push notifications. If you wanna learn more Techler Talks, uh, we can get more into that, or you can always check out the story in the show notes below. Meta has finally delivered on end-to-end -end encryption, and now I'm like, wow, Telegram needs to step up their game. Uh, startling new research on firmware vulnerabilities and also Android password managers and a lot more. Again, thank you all for tuning in. If you like this podcast, if you like it and it brings you any value, uh, definitely consider supporting us on Patreon. We're also on LibrePay and Monero. And yeah, uh, thank you all for tuning in. And again, last thing, share it around. Leave us a nice comment if you enjoy this kind of stuff. We like that. And uh, just share this around. And just thank you for tuning in and uh, caring about uh, your safety and digital rights. And I hope you learned something today. And we'll see you next time.